Welcome to Dig Beneath Design, a podcast where design professionals share how they communicate their work. I'm Sanaya Norton, landscape architect, and after 20 years of practice, I've seen how communication can make or break a project, no matter how great the idea. So I'm going out into the industry to uncover the best design communication strategies and tips to help us be more effective, more articulate designers and get more great ideas off the ground. Chris Moller is the opposite of a TV star. Don't get me wrong, as host of Grand Designs New Zealand for six years, he's got charisma in spades. But in person, he's earnest and erudite, with the enthusiasm of a lifelong teacher. He interrogates my questions and embarks on each answer as a mini-thesis, complete with footnotes, props, themes and sub-themes, and references to books I know I should have read. Chris is deeply passionate about design that challenges the way we live, build and think. He's taught at prestigious architecture schools, run practices in the UK, the Netherlands and New Zealand, invented a prefab building product called ClickRaft, and his latest project is a community centre in Christchurch inspired by a giant shellfish. We're in a light-filled recording studio in Windy Wellington. Our coffees sit cold and forgotten on the table, and Chris is off script. Find out why architects don't need project managers, how the power of communication lies in our hands, and what really went down behind the camera on Grand Designs. Let's get down to the good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. Hi, I'm Chris Moller. I'm an architect urbanist, and I suppose the thing is that I started life just making things. I grew up in a family that loved making things. Everything from clothes for my sisters, dolls and teddies, and also for myself, you know, camouflage stuff. Did everything. Went and bought the material, did literally the, the camouflage pattern and all the rest of it, all the way through to all the secret pockets and zips and goodness knows what else. Yeah, so to me that's all just part of architecture. It's, it's the entire landscape. And I suppose lots of people think that I'm a, a television personality, and I'm not, I never was. It's the exact opposite of what people think. I, I've always been busy with my knitting, and the, the television thing was a complete accident and a kind of side gig, and I just treated it as one of my projects. So that, that, that was a fun, crazy episode. What did you learn about connecting with people through a camera on Grand Designs? One, how to laugh at myself. That was huge, because I realised very quickly that I, I suppose the divide, which the camera does, because you really feel like you're looking down the barrel of a big gun. I mean, it's a pretty scary thing. Is It's not about me, it never was, but this thing of these poor people who have put themselves in front of a camera for all the world to see, going through you know, their highs, their lows, their mistakes, their, you know, and they've put everything on the line. I mean, my goodness, what a bunch of nutters. Why would you do that? <laughs> so then you have to feel empathy with them which I did, and I would walk around protecting them against um, the team. 
And, and on purpose, I would sit down with them beforehand and just go, if they ask you really dumb questions or you don't want to answer them, just ignore and you know, say whatever you want to say. Um, you don't have to do what they're asking and often the producer especially, but also the directors will have their own agenda. Don't do it. You know? So it's us against them. You know? So that, that was fun. So to kind of almost put the power back in their hands, which did two really crucial things. One is that it helped them to relax and just enjoy the crazy ride. And you've already signed up for this, so you might as well enjoy the journey and embrace it like I am. God, why did I let myself in for this? So, <laughs> which we you know, often would share as well. It's like, oh God, and, you know, and they would go, how did you end up in this gig? And I'd go, yeah, exactly. That was a dumb move, wasn't it? <laughs> Here we all are then. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that behind the scenes knowledge. I would not have known that. It's lovely that you protected them like that. Okay, another thing about Grand Designs that, that to me encapsulates our profession is when you have the builder and the client and the architect together. So I see lots of communication problems between those three parties mm. in our profession. And you'd be there as well, say, as the host of the show, you know, mediating, narrating. What do you make between those three things, builder, yeah. client, architect? Yeah, it's again, as, a, as somebody who's like fly on the wall in that particular instance, I think there's a very big difference between me and Kevin because I'm a practicing architect and that's radically different. As much as he is very empathetic and uh, supportive of the profession of architecture and is, is often trying to engage the architects, Grand Designs doesn't put the architect um, front and centre. No. Unless, of course, they're the person or people who are designing and building it. Yes. And they're, of course, the most interesting episodes anyway. Where does the disconnect lie, do you think, just say in communicating between, say, architect and builder? very different starting points and when they're one and the same person the, the starting point embraces both but you know if you have say for example builder and architect and you know by law the builder is carrying out the architect's instructions that's what they're doing so that's their job and they should not be sitting down with the client, which often happens, and uh, changing things and adapting them to either reduce cost or whatever, because that's not their role. But that happens all the time. Yes, exactly, and it shouldn't, but there you go. Which also raises then the next question, so it's not just architect builder, it's architect interior designer, uh, structural engineer, environmental engineer. Again, the architect is instructing all of those other consultants and the team, if you like, to realise it. And I think that's where the lack of a flat hierarchy has not helped the architectural profession. And a lot of architects, and certainly the profession, and a lot of the media that goes around it, and even the institutions, have removed themselves and divided themselves off to try and shore up their primary role yes. uh, and power base, yes, yes. which I think is flawed. And that's where ClickRaft comes in, by the way. ClickRaft is intentionally doing the opposite, which is it's atomizing architecture down to its smallest scale and bringing the tools back into the hands of the maker, as well as to make them small pieces which you can easily, even yourself, make up. And that's why I put it on Creative Commons, 
but not for commercial exploitation, but actually for, especially for students of design and self-help DIY uh, people that want to make their own thing. Tell me, how big is your practice? Do you have people working for I'm you? I'm it. It's you. Yeah, and I constantly have different collaborators and, and consultants and teams that are put together around projects. Rosie, who works with me on a kind of part-time, but you know, we're constantly working on things together, she would be the constant, but I'm also working with a bunch of others like Sam and Joe who have their own practice. And it's a lot of fun because we bring very different dimensions to the project. And then of course you have, you know, the environmental engineers, the structural engineers, who are all brilliant. I, I guess that's the thing. Arch architecture is much broader than, you know, the traditional definition of an architect. Yes. And it's collaborative. What do you think makes a good collaboration? What makes these people great to collaborate with? Well, one, that they're really good at what they do. That's crucial. Two, that the hierarchy is dead flat. So I generally don't work with project managers oh. for good reason. That the need is that all information goes to everybody in a very flat, open way, that it's 100% transparent so that people can pick up whatever nuance or relevant information out of the stuff and of course you could say, you know, if you're a structural engineer, you're not interested in the whole thing. But I think what's really good to do is kind of work towards a kind of total football approach. And if you have really informed clients, which we're lucky to have a bunch of quite euphoric clients who love to be hands-on, and, and that's fantastic. So, you know, that dance includes them as well. Um, Can you just explain total football? Yeah, well, I suppose it's, a, you know, I learned that first in the Netherlands because that's where base camp was and in the Netherlands total football like their polder model politics was very flat in the sense of every player could play anywhere on the field. And how does that work then on a project? Do you mean that you are able to listen to each other and take on views and opinions on your discipline from a different discipline? Yes, absolutely. And our architecture is on the one hand extremely pared back so much so that there's almost nothing there. And what I mean by that is that the materials, every component is doing at least two, if not three jobs. I'll give you an example. With Mount Pleasant in Christchurch, which is this tiny little community building, but it's very unusual in the way that it's been put together. And the whole thing is on the edge of an estuary, on the edge of Christchurch. So, I thought, gosh, we need to learn from other species who have adapted to this place and maybe they have clues which we could learn from and that kind of came out of observing the crustaceans in particular and I could see that, you know, they're sequestering carbon in water just like we do if you use timber in the atmosphere and locking it up and doing interesting things with it. But the other thing they do is with really, really minimal material create shells shell. which are incredibly strong and that's not just a shape and just a word it, it's a, a, a structural technique that is mathematical a shell and so this is not architecture that is inspired by indirectly and so we want something like this as a form yeah. so that it's a, it's a timber folded shell that's what it is and it looks like a big pippi or a tuatua which are local species of bivalve 
shells, you know, that have a hinge or a ligament in the middle. And that's also literally what the building has. Yes. And so what you've got is this in-between space between the, the, the ligament or the social hinge in the middle and the activity spaces of the hall or the studios or the other facilities and services either side. You know, the services are all exposed. Everything is all exposed. The structure is the architecture, like the architecture is the services. And what you've been talking about, I like how you've been talking about it in terms of power and empowerment and a flat structure and people mm. all working together towards a common end or towards producing something. Yeah, you have to trust the people in that process, don't you? You have to be open, you have to trust their expertise and trust their goodwill. Yes. So it's a real partnership. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess one of the key questions and in, in, in that is not just that they have different interests and different perspectives and even different trainings, but a completely different kind of question like what's the glue? How do you facilitate all of the things that you've just mentioned of trust, of, of engagement, of respect? How um, do you do it in the times you've done it? Well, the teams. there's a bundle of things. One is taking that right from the outset as a really important point of departure, that that's how you begin. The second thing is owning your own mistakes and then throw in a bundle of other things, which is uh, humility, transparency and humour. And, and I think they're really important. So, and, and the other thing that I love doing is really diving into the tough stuff from an investment point of view, like, you know, if this goes pear-shaped, then buck stops with me, but I expect that of everybody else as well. And the same the other way around that, you know, let's prototype this. So if everybody gets a stake in literally how we resolve the interface between the structure, the services, the, you know, what does it cost, etc. If we need to go into um, a manufacturing plant, let's all sit around the table together and work out Crikey, how do we turn this 18-metre billet over, let alone how do you cut? And you know, maybe these guys haven't got the tools that they need in order to do that. And how, how else could we explore that? Is there another way? So, but everybody is engaged in that and discussing that, which includes right down to the nitty-gritty of, you know, tolerance, fit and finish. You know, what is the final surface going to be? All of those questions. Yeah. Because it has to have a whole variety of performative characteristics, like, you know, where two materials come together, especially when you're exposing it, that, that has to be a, a structural relationship as well as a, a, an aesthetic one. And note that I use the word structural, not functional, because aesthetics is the most important function. In nature, it always is. Like, without flowers, you have no plants. So aesthetics is square one. So the law of attraction is uh, first level physics. You talked about humility, transparency and humour. Yeah. Would you say they're values that you've lived by or been taught? No, that I stumbled into and crashed into. <laughs> How did you come across them? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Probably by making a bunch of mistakes. Right, right. And, yeah. and ending up in, in circumstances that I never imagined beforehand. I mean, 
early on climbing in the hills and, and mountains, you know, again, you know, the thing is no insurance company is, is going to back you up and bail you out. Either you roped on or you didn't. Either you're dead or you're still alive, you know, and it's the same with sailing. And I think that they're really, really good, not just skills and things to do as a verb, but also um, as metaphors and as uh, ways of thinking and learning because you're constantly making mistakes as a sailor or as, as a mountaineer and you're in really tough, gnarly situations where you can easily die or, I don't know, lose a hand or something if you don't watch it. So, and a, a building site is a bit like that. So embracing that, but taking it seriously, but at the same time, you know, humor is this amazing release of tension, <laughs> which you kind of need in the worst possible situations when you've got no other choice. Especially you've got then. this, and now you can either do this or that, and it's, you know, and death is on the line. <laughs> death, actual or professional. Mm. Okay, that leads me then to another question, which is about politics. So particularly in master planning and urban design, which I know you've done a lot of as well as, as building and construction. How do you deal with that? How do you navigate the politics of those types of projects? Politics is often wrapped up in the words you use. So even though every now and again, I'll be coerced into using or embracing the word master planning, I would say we should shift that word. I like to talk about effectively setting up a game board. It's a very different idea than a master plan, which kind of suggests that, you know, somebody is a master or somebody's in charge, even if it's the drawing, and here's the plan. And this is what we're doing and this is how you do it. And of course, you'll get loads of people that would respond to that by saying, oh yeah, but that's not what we mean. We can change it, we can turn it around, we can manipulate it, rubbish. It's, it's a hidden agenda which surreptitiously carries on down that direction. Whereas if you start a game board, and then the question is what kind of game you're playing. Like, are you playing chess? Are you playing draughts? Are you playing tiddlywinks? Whatever it might be. And then what are the ingredients or what, what are the pieces that you're placing on the board and what are the rules of engagement? So what are the game rules? Who are the players? Who are the players? You know, so are you playing football? Are you playing rugby? Are you playing netball? And to me, that's a much more interesting way of thinking and working with other people where at least you have some clarity around certain things, but it's very much a framework and it kind of sits back and you might even shift and change and evolve the rules of the game or even the kinds of pieces, depending on how the game is played out and whether it's working or not. At this point, Chris scatters a deck of colourful cards in front of me. It's City on a Roof, a game designed to engage residents with the future of Groningen, a city in the Netherlands. But before the cards came another kind of game, a 24-hour interactive thought experiment called City in a Room. So it was non-stop through the night, five generations of people coming and going, and it began with a great big huge table and a tablecloth which everybody could write on as if they were city fathers. And there were everything from taxi drivers to designers to the city archaeologists to all, all sorts. And it was amazing. And, it, and, and what it created was really a kind of pressure cooker idea of a radically different understanding about cities and how they've evolved and how they work socially and this kind of classic kind of dialectic that happens across generations you know the next generation reject what their parents did and so on you know and you see that in design 
You see that in the broader community, and it really happened in this. And at the reflection at the very end, after you know, city and a room was finished, even the city archaeologist got up and he just said, "This has totally done my head in. I've seen the entire history of Honinga, which is a thousand years old, from beginning to end, and it really happened like what we just experienced across 24 hours." And I mean, it was just bonkers and brilliant and we should do it again. It's a completely different tradition than either the urban planning, urban design or urbanism traditions. And it's just wicked. Wow. How important is language to architects? Language is crucial and language isn't words. The language of architecture is making and making has multiple dimensions. In the early days, you would have people that made things by you know, either drawing in the ground or literally making models so that they could show the masons and the artisans and so on how to do something. And there were very few drawings. I mean, we've kind of, I suppose there was a period, especially in the Beaux-Arts period, when, you know, drawings became the role of the architect and that was the control of, you know, the visual. And uh, usually that was plan section and elevation and it was very simple and you let the again the masons and the artisans kind of work it out. So you're kind of saying that the language of architecture is making mm. is making mm -hmm. so when do architects need words? Well I suppose it, it, we're using words right now and of course there's lots of different kinds of words and that comes back now perfectly good segue to Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan really interesting, unusual genius character. In his own domain, I see a little bit like Buckminster Fuller. Do you guys know about Wired magazine? Yes. Okay. It kind of began in the early 90s, so it predates the internet, or at least the World Wide Web as we know it. And McLuhan was often referred to as the godfather of the internet and the web, particularly when it transformed into the web and image-based. But McLuhan was a linguist and um, he was a professor in Canada in linguistics and he looked at language and how it developed and he looked backwards in order to look forwards. So he researched alphabetic and pre-alphabetic man and behaviours and if you dive into McLuhan's, um, you know, like McLuhanisms and there's loads, absolutely loads and they're amazing and they're nuggets and it shows how powerful words can be. When What's you an example them. of one? Well know? he used aphorisms, I mean you know a lot of people started just talking about McLuhanisms but they actually mean aphorisms and an aphorism is, it's a little bit like the way humour works, is that you bring two things together that normally nobody would put together and the crashing together of these two phenomena make you laugh or raise a question. So the global village, uh, not that that's a joke, but that, that's McLuhan. So he invented that term and note that he invented it before the web, before the internet was really flying. Yes. In his projection backwards and his research, the medium pre-alphabet was sitting around the fire, you know, groups of people talking and how they communicated this is bang on target relative to the question you've asked, which is how did we communicate back then? Radically different than when the alphabet was invented, let alone when the press created a public. And you know, so those moments of technological innovation and change are also deep innovation socially. 
And in terms of communication, it's a completely different universe. So of course, as soon as those first communications were happening at the end of the 1800s electronically, you know, from North America to Europe, there's the beginning of a radical difference of how humans interact and how they communicate. And I guess one of the keys to that that McLuhan was really focused on was, I guess, the, the way that electricity behaves and works like an extension of your nervous system. So then it becomes part of your body. And that's really interesting. So this kind of instantaneous extension and consequently, you know, social media is a, is a very natural, that was just gonna happen. He foresaw all of that. Made me think of sparks between people and chemistry between people and that electricity you can even feel yes. sometimes. That yes. related... It's here right now. Exactly. It's in the room. It's sparking. It's visceral. You can yeah. touch it. It's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And what you were just talking about too in terms of early communications, how we would sit around a fire and talk or sing or dance or yes. move. Yes. Those types of things are still with us in terms of our body language, right? So you've just touched on something which I think is really fascinating. Back then, dance and walking, they're primal communication devices, literally as a, a, you know, an in integrated part of your body because it's exceedingly efficient and often richer and more useful information. Do you ever get nervous before? talks or presentations, meetings? No, because it's just me stumbling into something I don't know. And um, you're comfortable with that? Yeah, I suppose it, that, that's interesting in itself. And I know lots of people get nervous when they think they're performing. But, and there's two ways to deal with that. One is, you know, what some parents do, like when you're about to go to the dentist, let's practice with them, you know, many times so that, you know, it, it's actually boring. And I think the other trick, if you want to call it that, is realise that those people who you're engaging with are probably more nervous than you are. And even you two, because I know you're terribly worried about, you know, is, is this really working or not? And, you know, how many times has Chris been bashing into his microphone or, you know, turning <laughs> sideways? So, I mean, it, it, there's a lot that you, you two are having to deal with. So I think if you put that mindset on, so in other words, if you turn up to whatever phenomena it is that you're about to engage with, thinking, oh, we need to help these people. So um, be there to help. And, and if you're looking after everybody else, uh, they'll look after you and, it, and you know, they'll probably enjoy the journey because you're caring about them. What about if you could look back and see yourself entering the profession or you know, maybe your first architectural job or studio? What would you say to yourself? Go farming. Go farming? Yeah. Uh, you're, and architecture isn't where you think it is. And of course it's evolving flat out um, just as societies are. And I mean, I've already given you two completely different ones than farming, which is mountaineering and sailing. But the beauty of all three of them is it's all about triangulation. And through triangulation, which say for example, Buckminster Fuller talked a lot about, like the problem of the internet is it's just black and white. It's just zeros and ones. And that's not very useful information and it's very inefficient. So he was talking about the entire computer industry. Which is <laughs> like, you know, what about I don't know? It's a different idea between yes or no. And as soon as you triangulate, like even if the third corner is unknown, it's a variable, then straight away it's easier to, to navigate 
And that is really crucial right now. Like if you're going into outer space, we need to be able to navigate. We're not just sitting on a, you know, a flat earth. And, and even if you try and understand the sphere, you know, triangulation is way more useful than squares. So you would say to yourself, go farming as that third? Well, the cool thing about farming is it is an engaged, and I don't mean literally just the historical idea of farming, of industrialised food production. I mean it the other way around, that you're directly involved in creating, you know, resource that we need in order to survive, so food. But you're also, if you're doing it well, you're directly engaged with the total environment, which of course includes water, includes topography, includes all the other species. So the natural habitat is really crucial, and in that I'm including you know, soil, geology, etc., the, the, the entire thing. And so now what I'm bringing you towards is another really deep principle which I think around a lot, which I think is the very essence of what good architecture is. And I mean in architecture in the broadest sense. And again, I'll translate, what does that mean? My cousin is Peter Weston. He is one of Australia's top botanists. He was based most of his life at the Sydney... Botanic Gardens? Botanic or? Gardens, yeah. yes. And, and one of the things that he handed me at a certain point um, is his Bible, which is the architecture of plants. Isn't that a lovely twist? Yes. So when you start to see architecture with that kind of breadth, the word architecture belongs to everybody. It certainly uh, shouldn't just be left alone with a bunch of architects. It's way too important for that. All right. Chris, is there anything else that you want to add? Anything else that you haven't talked about that you would like to? Well, that's a dangerous question. <laughs> for today, particularly around communication, anything else? Maybe this, that when you're focused on a particular thing, and in this case it's communication, it often isn't what you think it is. So if you begin by thinking what a thing is not, then that's a really good way to look at everything. You know, one of the things that we used to say in City in a Room as well as City in a Roof is, you know, or not. <laughs> Which was, you know, just a lovely counterpoint. Maybe it isn't. And out of that, and this is worth sharing because it's like another one of my principles, I suppose, that I've evolved over the years and ClickRaft is deeply influenced by it, just as my input into City on a Roof and is a, what I call a philosophy of isn'tness, which kind of started from it isn't this. But isn'tness is the opposite of isness. And in some kind of ways, I mean, it is a philosophical way of thinking about things that just like, you know, what's important in the glass of water isn't this. It's about the water. So architecture's role is not the water. The, the role is to support, to express and, and to celebrate the water. So you're in the background. And what a lovely thing to be doing. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast and meeting you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Dig Beneath Design, here to help you in your daily design communication challenges. So I'd love to hear from you, what you think of the show, what you want to know. Tell me the design communicators that inspire you. Or maybe there's a great story from your own experience that can help your fellow designers. 
Find more interviews at sndc.com.au forward slash Dig Beneath Design. Dig Beneath Design is brought to you by SNDC. Original music by Adam Jones. Sound and photography by James Norton. Engineered and mastered at Sound Kitchen Sydney. I'm Sunaya Norton. Join me next time for more good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. <laughs>